But now, if you're one of those people who find spelling difficult, instead of trying to improve your spelling, why not improve the spelling system? And how did English spelling get so unpredictable in the first place? Stephen Fry, that's Step Hen Fry, provides the answers in Fry's English Delight. So there we were at the end of the last series discussing kisses on the bottom, with which we signed off our final programme about the letter X. And pretty promptly afterwards, a mysterious postcard flooded in, minus any kisses on the bottom, in fact, minus any recognisable alphabetical letters at all. Calligraphic in execution, yet totally indecipherable in effect. Our first instinct was to show it to Dr Irving Finkel from the British Museum, a specialist in Mesopotamian and other rare scripts. It's not Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew or Arabic or Syriac or any of that group of languages. It's cursive. It's written with a thick nib by someone who is very familiar with this script. It's certainly not cuneiform, it's certainly not hieroglyphic. It is an alphabetic script, and it looks to me as if it corresponds to our alphabet with a different shape for the letters. It has the name of the recipient, someone called Stephen Fry. I don't know the name, but... Uh, and Fry's English delight. You can look him up on the, your passes on the, you know, on, the, on the net. And here's Professor David Crystal, world expert on the English language. It looks like uh, a goldfish has, has eaten some dye and has uh, scrawled stuff all over its bowl, don't you think? Hmm, not sure. More help needed. Let's try a tweet. Anyone know what this is? A busker called Wayne had a go. I first thought it might have been mirrored Hebrew handwriting, which it was not. I then thought it might have been Thai or Mayalayim, which I can't pronounce, but it wasn't either of those either. And then I thought it was perhaps the script from the Voynich manuscript, which it also wasn't. Wait a moment. It sounds stupid, but it looks like English that something's been done to. It doesn't look like another language. Oh, wait a moment, wait a moment. Cursive substitute alphabetic system writing English, I would say. I think this is SH, and this is SH. Halfway there! Within about six minutes, though, we had our answer. Tweeters identified the language and decoded the message. I enjoyed your series, especially last Thursday's programme, The Letter X. Or rather, Rob Kay, a primary school teacher in Staleybridge near Manchester, did. Bearing in mind that we speak a language with 44 phonemes... 24 consonants... And eventually, musician and busker Wayne Myers also cracked it once he knew from the Twitter sphere about the code. Six-letter version of the Roman alphabet. We raced several letters, mostly X. X does the work of K and S. It could be used for a single sound. Yes, see your point. X has at least two roles: the Z in xylophone and the X in socks. Maybe we should just spell socks, S-O-X. Another example, the common English sound th should have a single letter all its own. Shouldn't need two letters. Th used to have its own letter, useful letter, called thorn. Got thrown away. Why? 
And who is it that prompts all these questions? Who lurks behind the code? I came up with the name Una Burgess initially. Okay, so what Una is saying is our alphabet, arguably, isn't entirely fit for the purpose of efficiently representing all the sounds of our language in writing, and the rules are so strange. I before E, except after C. Weird. And what is the code in which she writes? Sorry, after you posted the tweet, I saw that thousands of people had put replies suggesting what it could be, and amongst the Greek, the Arabic, and all the other symbols, the word Shavian came up, and suddenly the light bulb came up, and it reminded me back to my PGC when I was training as a teacher, and I came across the Shavian alphabet when I was trying to get to grips with phonics. The Shavian or Shavian alphabet inspired by, but not invented by, George Bernard Shaw, who wanted wholesale reform of the way we write and spell English. Phonics, the practice of learning and teaching how to match sounds and the written word. Controversy reigns. Warning, this programme isn't really about that. It's about our wonky and allegedly damaging alphabet. Shaw, like a lot of spelling reformers, thinks the irregularity in English spelling does harm. Here's a modern reformer. This is Marsha Bell. I think it's very damaging because it makes literacy acquisition, it makes learning to read and write much, much slower and harder than it needs to be. I first began to learn English in Lithuania, in the old Soviet Union, and I was really looking forward to it because I'd read Shakespeare in translation, uh, uh, Hamlet, at the age of 13, and I thought it were, he was wonderful, and I really wanted to learn English. And I was just hugely disappointed when I first started to learn and the teacher explained how the same letter can have different sounds and how identical sounds are spelled differently. And my reaction was just one of horror. I just thought, how can anybody learn this? And even back then, at the age of 14, my biggest question really was, how can they bear to do this to their children? So could we somehow straighten out our complicated spelling system? And how did it get like this in the first place? Una's postcard and the response it received has provoked some interest. I've sort of become a little bit involved with it, and it's progressed and progressed, and I've ended up in a situation where... I've become part of something, and I'd like to know where this thing ends and where this thing has come from. Exactly, Rob. You have become part of something, as have we all, including the mysterious Una Burgess. We've all become part of a hugely complex language system that has progressed and progressed, and in so doing seems to have got into a bit of a muddle. How it's written and how it sounds often seem at odds, as Rob's class of bright ten-year-olds know only too well. OK. Gabby, what do you think two letters make the A sound in your words? E. E and Y, super, so I'm going to give you that. E and Y, A sound. Um, on a, you might have it on a foot pump. OK, it's got a little screen on it that tells you what the pressure is. Do you know what that's called, Callum? Is it... It's got that A sound in it, that's your clue. Eleven different ways of making that A sound. But how have we got to the point where we have eleven different ways of spelling the simple sound A? As in bird of prey, or the number eight, or way? It's a gauge, and gauge is spelled G-A-U-G-E. For the answer, 
we have to travel back to the 6th century AD, where Anglo-Saxon people are being civilised by Christian monks. Not only did the monks want everyone to become Christians, they also needed a system of writing down the Germanic-sounding stuff the Anglo-Saxons said. Professor David Crystal, Honorary Professor of Linguistics at the University of Wales, takes up the story. When the missionaries arrived and wrote English down for the first time, they did it using the only system they knew, which was the Latin alphabet. And they looked at English and saw that it didn't quite fit Latin because there were different numbers of sounds there and different types of sound. So they adapted the Latin alphabet as best they could and supplemented it by a handful of letters that they got from the other alphabets, the Germanic runic alphabet, the Irish alphabet, and so on. And they ended up with a system which was actually extremely regular. I mean, people say we want English to be a phonetic language, you know, with one sound, one letter these days, and that's the basis of a lot of spelling reforms. But in Anglo-Saxon times, that's exactly how it was, with just a few few exceptions. I mean, you know, no language, no language is perfectly phonetic. And if it had stayed like that, we wouldn't be having the conversation now. But our emerging language, Old English, didn't stay like that. But of course, what happened was that subsequent generations, by degrees, messed things up. Uh, the first people to mess it up were the French. Along they come in 1066 and all that, and the French scribes decided largely consciously, I suspect, that uh, really the Old English system wasn't elegant enough, it wasn't French enough, and so they started to change it. So they introduced French letters and French combinations of letters, for example, the Anglo-Saxon word for a, for a queen, which we now spell Q-U-E-E-N, was nice and phonetic, C-W-E-N, queen. But... That CW initial wasn't good enough for the French. No, no, it had to be a good French QU, you see, and, and away you go with a different uh, spelling. Uh, or the Old English word for mice, plural of mouse, was M-Y-S, or sometimes M-I-S, mice, like that. S at the end, no, 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 that's, uh, that, that's, that's very ugly. Uh, it should be a C and an E, and that spelling got introduced at the ends of words in the French period. Now, there are dozens of examples like that, and as a result of the French innovation, what was previously a nice phonetic language became overlaid with a romance system of spelling. So we now have a system of spelling which has two layers in it, an originally Germanic layer and now a romance layer as well. But the changes in how we wrote our language didn't stop there. Oh, no. Here comes technology. People say printing helped to standardise English spelling, and it certainly did. But Caxton was not a linguist, he's not a spelling reformer, he's just a commercial man, he's a publisher, he wants to make money out of his books. And he just chooses spellings all over the place that he thinks will work. And in many cases, it wasn't his choice, it was his typesetter's choice. Uh, and this is the other complication, I mean, one of the... Classic examples is, is why is there an H in ghost? Oh, why isn't it spelled G-O-S-T, as it was before Caxton came along? And the answer is because his Flemish typesetters, knowing little English but used to printing in Holland and uh, Belgium, decided that when they encountered that word, they should spell it in the Flemish way, which was Geest, which was G-H-E-E-S-T. So they put an H in, and they did it in other words as well. Uh, they put an H into girl, G-H-E-R-L. Uh, they put an H into geese, G-H-E-E-S-E, and so on. Those spellings didn't stay, but for a while there was a great deal of variation introduced by the Flemings. Uh, ghost stayed, of course, because the Bible later adopted it, and if you've got the Holy Ghost, then definitely an H has got to be there. <laughs> 
Fast forward a bit, and there's more tinkering with the language. And in the 16th century, now we have a third layer of spelling introduced in the form of the first spelling reformers, who decided that the mess that the French and others had made of English spelling in the 14th and 15th century had to be sorted out. They would point to words like night, n-i-g-h-t, as we spell it now, which. Had over thirty different spellings in the medieval period: n i g h t, n y g h t, n i g h t e, n y h t, n i t e, and so on and so on and so on. And the sixteenth-century guys said, "How can we sort it out? Everybody knows Latin, so let's give them a spelling which reminds them of the Latin origins of the word, and then everybody will spell it in the same way." So now we have a language with three layers in: the Germanic, the Romance, and the Classical Latin. So they would take a word like debt, where we owe money, which was in Middle English spelt D-E-T or D-E-T-T or D-E-T-T-E and so on. And they said, no, no, we'll sort this out. The origin of debt is debitum in Latin. We will take the letter B from debitum and insert it into the word debt. We won't have to pronounce it, of course. It'll just remind everybody how it should be spelled, and everybody will thank us for this gift to the English language. And that is where the origin of so many of these silent letters come from. This classical orientation for words in the 16th century—that is why we have a B in subtle. That's why we have a silent L in salmon. That's why we have a silent P in receipt, and so on and so on and so on. Now to an unsung hero of the language, a man called John Hart, who wanted to rewind everything in the history you have just heard and start again with a new method of writing or orthography. He wrote a book called An Orthography, containing the due order and reason how to write or paint the image of man's voice, most like the life or nature. The titles are great, actually. This is Jennifer Richards, professor of early modern literature and culture at Newcastle University, and a fan of Hart's reforming zeal and his insight into what language is. He understands the alphabet as a painting of the sounds that we make. He imagines a scene, a dialogue between a sitter and a painter, not a very good painter in his view. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase and add to the dialogue. Um, the sitter says, "I want my portrait painted. I want it to be as accurate as possible." And the painter, who represents the current alphabet, basically says back, "Well,、um, you're wearing a pair of brown trousers.、Uh, that's fine, but I'm not going to paint that. I'm going to paint three pairs. You're wearing three pairs of trousers, two sizes too big, and all in different colours. And on each item of clothing, I'm going to add、um, the name of the place where it comes from." In other words, the English language is wearing, to borrow an image from Wallace and Gromit (single M, by the way), the wrong trousers. In fact, multiple wrong trousers. What he's telling us is that the current English alphabet has too many letters. It、um, carries, it bears witness to the languages that English comes from, and it, it doesn't properly represent naturalistically the voice in which we speak. And that's why he's going to reform English spelling. And he describes、um, sound as feelings and touchings in and of the mouth. And I think that's just wonderful. I think that's brilliant. He is the 16th-century Bernard Shaw, definitely, because they're both interested in an alphabet that actually represents, in their view, the the sounds that we make. But in his next book, another spelling one, Hart moans about the poor reception given to the first. 
He complains about the fact that the learned don't care about enabling illiterate men and women to learn how to read quickly. He's written a simpler book with more examples and he wants them to take up uh, his new alphabet. But there's also a kind of giveaway phrase as well which tells us a bit about why it might not have been successful because he acknowledges that it's really hard to change custom that some of the spellings of words have been in long use. And even though, in his mind, his alphabet is simpler, more straightforward, he recognises that people will find it hard. Now to the man who wrote a dictionary in order, in part, to put all this right, to steady the language, make it solid. Dr Johnson, who wants steadiness and uniformity. Johnson thought he knew the answer to everything, and he didn't. He got several things wrong. Um, one of his principles was there should never be a word in English ending in the letter C. Previously, all the words had ended in C-K, as in music, you know, M-U-S-I-C-K, critic, C-R-I-T-I-C-K. Johnson said, no, 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 keep the C-K. Of course, within 20 or 30 years of Johnson's dictionary, people had decided Johnson was wrong. So far, then, religion, bureaucracy, technology, education and the efforts of individual reformers didn't succeed in reforming the way we write what we say. Looks like a losing battle. Showing that no single factor or person can have a widespread effect on how our languages were written. Right? Were wrong. Enter American lexicographer Noah Webster, accompanied by the sounds of the American War of Independence. Noah Webster would like it if wrong was spelt without the W. He would like it if tongue were spelt T-U-N-G. This is Dr Lynn, no E by the way, Murphy, reader in linguistics at the University of Sussex. Webster's got an essay where he writes about this entirely in what he th- how he thinks we should be spelling, where improvement has two O's in the middle and uh, is is spelt I-Z. Webster's changes to English spelling happened in a particular historical moment when people were ready for, for change in their language, where people were looking to differentiate their modern American language from the language of the country that they'd separated from. Webster was a political person, and he knew what he was doing there, but there was also probably a zeitgeist for it, that now is our time to declare ourselves as Americans and to declare it in print by the way we represent the language. So English was revolutionised as part of another, bigger revolution. If you're a revolutionary, you want to change everything. You want to have some way that, that you can show your identity as a different group. And for some of the early Americans, it was important to especially differentiate yourself as a democratic person, as a Republican, and um, therefore to make the language a bit more demotic, to make it a bit more an everyman's language. This idea of an accessible everyman's way of writing and talking is one that takes strong hold among spelling reformers. But the emerging young American nation stopped well short of having a totally new language. Well, I think a lot of your country people think that American is a different language. Um, you could see that you might want to, as, as a new American in a new America, to differentiate yourself from 
the place that oppressed you, as, as you perceive it. But at the same time, your language is a part of your identity, and you can't change, you know, if you're 40 years old, you can't just suddenly decide, I'm going to speak a new language. That reminds me, Yuna, or Una, we think your name is Yuna, here comes your bit. Change requires what your man George Bernard Shaw wanted to do. He'd teach a new language to children learning to read and write. They'd be his year zero. Shaw, like Hart 400 years earlier, was mindful of what he saw as the divisive effect of English. The historical connections between words and their Latinate spellings are unlikely to be helpful if you haven't learnt Latin or French. As early as 1910, Shaw wrote... This has been especially forced on my attention by my intercourse in labour and socialist movements with working men who read a great deal but have no opportunity in their own class of hearing the words they read actually spoken. Shaw also had an important artistic reason for wanting to reform orthography. He was first and foremost a playwright. Shaw biographer Michael Holroyd. He wanted various characters to have various accents, dialects, uh, and so on. And he found that he couldn't actually indicate what he wanted the actors to do phonetically. When he tried in the ordinary 26-letter alphabet to show the sounds he wanted them to make, uh, and this is particularly true, of course, in Pygmalion, where the sounds change enormously as the flower girl uh, leaves her East End accent to get a West End accent, he couldn't do it with the 26-letter alphabet. He therefore wanted something whereby each um, symbol represented a sound and had the magic that what you saw, you also heard. And he saw his plays partly as being for sound. And that's why the phonetic alphabet was very important to him, to try and make something ideal, something better. So Shaw's legacy literally would be a new alphabet. And he thought his alphabet, not invented by him, but put up to uh, an international competition to get the best, would be easier for children to get to the language quickly. There would be fewer semi-illiterate people. Better for foreigners. They could get the English language much quicker and they would make English a universal language and that would be very good for business. He thought it would take less penmanship, be quicker and it would also of course since it took up less uh, room on the page, save the trees there is an environmental argument too. Really deeply what he felt was this, that our history had been appalling you remember, we're talking now when he makes his will in the mid-1940s, two world wars in his lifetime and more wars to come and more wars in the past and we didn't evolve properly. There was so much misunderstanding between countries. It was absolutely ridiculous. If you stop the lettering like that, it's as if you turn your back on the past and you create a new alphabet. It renews the future. So he is a deep, mystical reformer a revolutionary reformer who recognises the link between language and identity. Wouldn't it be lovely to revolutionise English culture and class with a stroke of the pen? Some
It is an irony that Shaw's financial legacy was swollen after his death by none other than Liza Doolittle. Shaw had decreed that after his death, no musical versions of his work should be created. Yet the music from My Fair Lady's cash register got the new alphabet off the ground. It had a competition. Uh, a new alphabet was uh, put together. Phonetic alphabet, 48 syllables. It works. And by then, everybody was interested in My Fair Lady and not the alphabet. <laughs> And there are still those who want to reform English spelling. The English Spelling Society provides a forum for them. But wisely, the society doesn't espouse one system of reform. They just want to raise awareness of what they see as a problem. But Marsha Bell, one of the 90 paid-up members of the society, has specific ideas about reform, even if it's only a vigorous tidy-up of some irregularities. You can see what she means on her blog. Link on the website. I definitely think that the English spelling system needs to be tidied up and it, it, it could so easily be tidied up because there are so many unnecessary irregularities which obscure the basic rules of the system. But because there's so much to learn, you still get children unable to cope. And if you reduce the learning burden, I mean, a very simple thing. There's no need whatsoever for the I in friend, which breaks the pattern of end and send and bend. So, a top-down reform based on Marsha's research? Oh, well, yes. If government spent the money on investigating how English spelling can be tidied up and improved and then made recommendations and even brought in laws to change it, I can guarantee we would have much higher literacy standards overnight. But do you think spelling reform like, like the ones we've heard of is... is actually always doomed, David Crystal? I get a new proposal for spelling reform sent to me, uh, because people know who I am, I suppose, every six months on, on average. Um, I've got dozens of them at home. Um, they're all different. And this is their problem. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Uh, until they can all agree on a single system of reform, they're on a hiding to nothing. That's the first point. The second point is that any spelling reform system which tries to reflect pronunciation, the biggest question is, which form of pronunciation do you use? Having mud um, rhyme with good, for example. <laughs> uh, would you force the southerners to say mud? And, of course, in America, it would be utterly different because Shaw is a good example. Bernard Shaw, he's Bernard Shaw. And he would not rhyme with the word, are you sure, as in, are you sure? Is Rhyming it? is the key. It, it's uh, a very good clue, isn't it? It's isn't a it? very good test. Uh, it, it's how we know so much about earlier history in the pronunciation of English. It's the same thing now. I mean, as soon as you look at rhymes, you see the differences in English all over the English-speaking world. And this is the biggest problem for the spelling reformer. It's inconceivable that a single system of spelling could accurately reflect the pronunciation differences of these people. It's something we could talk about forever, but thanks very much, David Crystal, and, of course, to Una Burgess for bringing this up in the first place. If Una it is. Remember busker and codebreaker Wayne Myers? He had translated the postcard Una had sent to Fry's English Delight, like lots of others had. He was pretty sure of the whole translation, but... The only bit which did pose some difficulties was the signature at the end. There was a little bit of back and forth on Twitter and on my blog... The difficulty is, is that the, the letters there weren't necessarily as clear as they could have been and could have been read in one or two ways. But I googled the name Ian Innes Burgess 
and found a letter which definitely did seem to be written by a man who may well have been a master of the Shavian alphabet, and after that I was pretty sure it was Ian Innes Burgess. So apologies to any Una Burgesses listening, and our thanks to Mr Ian Innes Burgess for starting this off. And our thanks to Stephen Fry for finishing this off. Well, sort of. If you'd like to see Mr Burgess's postcard or read Ms Bell's blog or hear more of the conversation between Stephen Fry and David Crystal, head for the Radio 4 website. Fry's English Delight is a testbed production for BBC Radio 4 and the producer was Nick Baker.